Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci-Fi's and the Magicians. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Magicians Episode Review. I'm Jason. I'm Christina. And today we are reviewing Season 3, Episode 1, The Tales of the Seven Keys. Which is worded a little funny. Originally it said The Tale of Seven Keys, which kind of flows better. Yeah, I guess someone up top was like, we need to change it. We need more thes. Throw some more thes in there. And pluralized keys. <laughs> Written by Sarah Gamble, directed by Chris Fisher, IMDb gave this an 8.8. Quentin and Julia visit a party god to help them bring back magic while Elliot and Margot deal with their fairy infestation. But before we get deep into the magicians, if you're new here, welcome. We are the CKC and you are officially a clatcher. Jason, if they're new, they probably don't even know what that means. CKC stands for Coffee Clatch Crew. That's us. What is a clatch, you might ask? This is an. It's a purse. <laughs> no, no, that's a clutch. Um, I'm sorry, sweetie. This is an old German phrase, coffee clutch, which stood for a social gathering among friends for coffee and conversation. And when we first started this podcast, what is it over four years ago now? Yeah, we thought that perfectly summed up what we were trying to do here: get old friends together and talk about things we were passionate about, mainly TV shows and movies that we were into. I'm sure everyone out there has had in the past or is currently watching a show that all their friends aren't watching or coworkers aren't watching and you just want to talk about it. Well, that's what we're here for. We sit down with you and all the other Clatchers every week and we discuss your favorite show. We give you background knowledge. We give you our opinions. We call it the virtual water cooler. And especially with a show like Magicians, I think this brings in kind of a niche audience. I'm hoping that it's getting bigger now, that people are realizing how fantastic it is. Yeah. And I think they really opened up season three very strong. This episode had some tight storytelling, a good tease of the quest we're about to go on the season. Everyone was on their own separate journeys, but after pretty much the same thing, there was a kind of reintroduction to all of our important characters and where we left off with them in season two. Absolutely. For a season opener, they really managed to cram a lot into one episode and not make us feel like they're cramming it. Everything felt smartly written, very tight, like they're really getting comfortable with each other, the actors, the writers. They were able to remind us what happened, get us right back into motion, and also set up every character's mission. And even though the main goal is all the same, bring back magic, all their missions are different in certain ways. Well, and speaking of which, it's amazing that they managed to do so many things and have so much fun, considering there is no magic in this world right now. That's what we signed on for, right? To see magic. But that's what I've always loved about the magicians, from the books through to the TV show. We know that this is sort of loosely based. Lev Grossman drew inspiration from the Chronicles of Narnia, but in the sense that after reading it, he wanted to tell a different kind of story. What would magic look like in the real world? It won't fix all of your problems. It's difficult. Sometimes it's dark. I think the creators of this show had a very difficult task trying to figure out how to adapt it into their own style for this medium. And they're really finding their stride with how to do that. From the beginning, I loved it. I love the spin of it. And we've talked about it in the past. 
the fact that just because you have magic powers or you're a magician doesn't mean that you can just wave a wand and say some words, abracadabra, and magic happens. You actually have to work at it. And there is no wand. It's actually hand gestures that you have to really work like a dance to get the gestures correctly and the sayings correctly. The tutting. The tutting, exactly. (laughs) Just like everything in real life, it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't fix everything. It doesn't make everything perfect. It has its drawbacks. It has its own pain. And yet they're nothing without it. And that's particularly what this episode highlighted. Each of them is struggling in their own way, not just because they can't do magic, but it's such an integral part of their identity now. Josh says it perfectly during that scene. He doesn't even know who he is anymore. So I'm really excited to go on this epic quest that we'll talk about more later, where I think we're going to have some fun adventures and bring in elements that I really enjoyed from the books to find the keys that hopefully will bring magic back. Just as a warning, if you are new to Coffee Clatch Crew, we are going to spoil all of the Magician's episodes through to present, season three, episode one, and any book knowledge that has already been brought into the show. We won't spoil anything moving forward or any teasers from book knowledge that I might have. And we will save some of the book background that might give a little spoilers and information about next episode till the end of the podcast and give you a warning. Really quick, I just want to state that the last week and a half, we have been having some issues with our website. We spend a lot of money on a hosting account that was supposed to fix this issue. And every time we get a little bit bigger, the site starts to crash. And I've been working on it diligently, pulling my hair out for maybe eight days, seven, eight days now. And as we speak, it's still down. And I'm now outsourcing it to a team to see if they can fix it. And we will be eventually moving to a new hosting company. So this particular episode might be out a little late. Hopefully you're hearing it at all. (laughs) In the future, we try our best and we normally are on time. So either two or three days after the episode we have a new podcast for you. Once the site's up, if you haven't heard it, we had an awesome chat with Arjun Gupta, who plays Penny. It was amazing, and he had fun too. And he has told us that he's going to come on again this season, so that should be fun. But if you haven't heard it... I'm excited whenever you want, Arjun. But if you haven't heard it, go ahead back. The website should be functional by the time you're hearing this, and check out that podcast. Okay, the way we start off is we go over new faces and places first, and then we jump into our plot. And towards the end of the episode, we're going to be giving our grade for that particular episode. Last year, we graded in 1 to 10 crowns, but this year we're now grading from 1 to 10 keys. It's only fitting, right? But we will keep the acronym MVM for Most Valuable Magician each episode. This is pretty much your MVP, who you think the most valuable person was in that episode, who did the most to advance the plot, or in the past had some really great magic. I don't know if that'll apply this season. Jason and I give ours. We also love to talk about your MBMs. So every week, not including this week because of our issues, we will put up on our Twitter, at CKC Podcast, a poll directly after the episode, giving you options to vote for your MVM, Most Valuable Magician. And then you can also comment in that poll and tell us why. Okay, Jason, let's begin with new faces for season two. We saw Irene McAllister, who works for the Board of Trustees, a completely new organization to us that is being pretty threatening towards break bills. 
we also had Bacchus. I really enjoyed this Hmm. character. If you know your Greek and Roman mythology, you'll be familiar. But if not, a little bit of background. Bacchus is the Roman name for the god Dionysus. He was the god of winemaking, ritual madness, revelry, fertility, and religious ecstasy in ancient Greek mythology. This is interesting. He was definitively the son of Zeus and either a mortal named Semele or Persephone or Demeter. No one is really sure. I'm guessing in this storyline, not Persephone. We've already seen she has a son, Reynard, and I don't think they're going to complicate it. We might never even find out who they think his parents are here. But Bacchus had cult followings, and his procession included wild female followers called menads. In his Roman form, he was depicted with a thyrsus, a wand and weapon used to destroy those who opposed him and the freedom that his cult represented. We get a little bit of a different version here of Bacchus, and we'll talk about that more in his scene. We also had some new places. The Darkling Wood was a reintroduction. We saw that last season. It's a mysterious and vastly uncharted wood that is home to many of Fillory's questing creatures. And we heard about After Island, an island that lies beyond the border of Fillory across the Outer Sea, which is very dangerous to our characters. For creatures, we had the Lumbricus Compestris, a type of earthworm that lives in abundance in the grounds around Whitespire. The Great Cock of the Darkling Wood, a magical creature, a peacock, who is brother to the Winter's Doe, and gives Elliot the quest for the Seven Keys. And perhaps my favorite, the Messenger Bunnies. These guys were amazing. I don't know why, but I couldn't stop laughing. Oh, they were hilarious. That's why you couldn't stop laughing. And of course, no real spells and magic, but we did get the Tale of Seven Keys, which I don't want to get into just yet. That's part of what contains spoilers. Well, Julia did some magic, no? Yeah, she had those fun smoke rings. Yeah, that's magic. And speaking of Julia, let's get into our plot because we open up the episode with Quentin and Julia. Julia tries to do magic and laments to Q that she can't do anything real and her abilities feel random. Quentin thinks she still has magic because of Reynard, but also it may lead them somewhere and pushes her to keep trying. So what do you think about this? Do you think it is random? Does she have an unlimited amount coming from somewhere or is this a finite bit of magic that came from somewhere, whether that's... touched by a god? Right, that's going to run out eventually. No, I don't believe that's it. If you remember, in season one, on this timeline, Dean Fogg and Jane chose to keep Julia out of the loop in the beginning. She wasn't part of the magicians in their hopes to change them all dying when they faced the beast. So she was forced to try to learn magic on her own. And if you remember, that was the first thing she was able to do, that, the electricity between her hands. And that's how season two ended. So I think because of that, because of her struggle, with everyone starting on that clean slate again, and there not being magic, even though I think there is, it's just hidden or mm-hmm. harder to find. We'll get there, yep. She's able to dig deep and get some kind of magic through her because she's gone through this struggle before. Well, we had discussed this a little bit at the end of season two. And you had kind of brought up the same point that she had learned to find it on her own. But I had kind of countered, it seems to be that there are only two ways to access magic right now. One, if you draw from the wellspring, which has been cut off to all of our magicians. Or two, if you are an innately magical creature, people like the fairies. 
neither of which would seem to allow Julia, no matter how hard she tried or how good she was at magic, to be able to perform it. So we had kind of questioned, did this come from somewhere else? We had thought at the time it could be a gift from Persephone, who seemed to take a liking to Julia, and they had a bit of an understanding at the end of last season when she took away Reynard to be punished, which is another ongoing question. Did she ever kill her son? Where is he right now? Where is Persephone? When they go to look for a god, did they think about calling her? I know Julia has this comment she's afraid to even do that because she doesn't want what happened to her to happen to anyone else. And her very first attempts to call Our Lady Underground are what led to the situation she wound up in with Reynard. So I'm sure she would be most hesitant to talk to Persephone, but again, they kind of had a good relationship. So I was a little surprised they didn't bat that around. But with the introduction of information in this episode, I think you could be right. It seems there is a little bit of magic hanging around somewhere. There is this question of, is it accessible? Do people like Mayakovsky have it stored up in a battery that they could find, but you can't draw from it yet? Or maybe she can draw from it because of what she went through. Right. How does all this work? What are the mechanics of it? And they're all on that hunt to figure that out, right? Each one of our magicians separately and for kind of different reasons. Yeah, they're all going through that struggle, which we will delve into further into this episode. But I do want to say that I can relate with that struggle, losing the power, losing the magic. With our website going down for eight days, I feel like we've lost everything. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Can you imagine if we were actually able to do amazing things like this and then that just being taken away from oh, you? Not at all. Can't imagine. Somebody just needs to go find that plumber guy. Yeah. And hold Mario? him hostage till he turns it back yeah. on. Next, we go over to Penny, who wakes up handcuffed in a man's home he broke into in an attempt to collect an overdue library book. How sexy did he look in that suit? <laughs> I love that he's on the job, still just doing what he's supposed to be doing, going around to people's homes, trying to get their books back. And he says, well, what else am I going to do right now? I kind of have to do something, keep busy. But we find out later how incredibly dangerous that is for him to be traveling anywhere outside of the Netherlands. I kind of can't believe he's doing that. And I don't think Katie can either. Yeah, it's a little ridiculous. It's just goes to show there's something we don't know about this library. What I really loved about this scene is it really set everything up for us. It gave us little clues and gave us questions at the same time, and also answered the question we had all off-season. One, is, is Penny, Penny still dying? Yeah. And two, is he going to work for the library? Remember we kept saying there was like three or two episodes after he already signed over his life to the library. We're like, is he working for the library? Because it feels like he's never there. Well, now we know he's Legit work, and he's got... He's almost permanently there. He can only leave for an hour max at a time. Yeah, he's got a dope suit. And I really liked his demeanor in this. It was very confident. And I love when Penny has that confident demeanor about him. That was one of the qualities that made, for me, him last season's MVM, besides his magic. I mean, there's a lot of qualities which we went through. But also, in him speaking to that other gentleman... We find out that Mayakovsky has left, and that's because magic is gone, so he was no longer trapped in Breakbill South. He has the batteries, and some people believe that Mayakovsky's the one who shut down magic. That was a really interesting conspiracy. This guy thinks he shut down the magic on purpose in order to free himself from this contract he was bound to 
storing up magic in his batteries in the meantime, so he would be all set. That does not feel very Mayakovsky to me. I know he's eccentric. Selfish. He's always been very depressed about having to be where he's at, but I don't think he would do that. Now, maybe he saw this eventuality coming for some reason. As Harriet said later, some people must have known And he was just taking precautions. And now, of course, he took advantage of the opportunity to leave. But I think our characters are going to wind up coming back into interaction with him soon. And hopefully he's going to help them. I hope so. I love Mayakovsky in this show. Let's remember that, and I'm not disregarding, maybe there is something about that with him taking some magic with him. But remember, he started storing it because the wellspring was dying. And everyone was slowly losing magic, remember? Yeah, yeah. He, so he, he saw it coming. Yeah, I don't think he saw Mario coming down and turning off magic um, itself. Maybe, maybe but not. We all knew that magic was dying, and he saw something happen. But yeah. he was starting to do that even beforehand. So I wonder if there's deeper information about this world, the gods, things that he always seems to have a lot of wisdom. And I think we're going to hear about that. I'm hoping it's going to be Penny again who interacts with him because I always love those two on screen together. Yeah. But speaking of which, the bigger, huge question mark I took out of this scene, the man notes that all creatures are fine because magic is interwoven in their very DNA. And at this point, Penny chastises the man for not recognizing him as a magical creature. Creatures, they're fine. Whatever they are, it's DNA. So I hear... We're fish bait now. Thank God I got this place, because they're coming. I promise you. Well, karma is a righteous bitch. Karma's <laughs> gonna be we kill them all, son. If you can. I mean, some of them look just like us. You'd never know they're not quite human. Then travels out of his cuff, gets the book, and leaves. Record scratch, is Penny a magical creature? I know, right? Or was he messing with the was guy? He, right, was he messing with the guy to scare him so he could buy himself a moment's time to travel out? It seemed like a comment we didn't need to put in there for no reason. And there has been a question about how is Penny still able to do this? They've always made a distinction between regular magicians and travelers. They have something that's different. But I thought it was still magic they had to pull from the general pool. Yeah. Yet he was able to keep doing that after the end of last season and into this. So what would be the explanation? What category does he fall into? I'm having trouble remembering. I seem to remember that a traveler is a different level of magic or something, right? Not everyone, like you either have it or you don't. You you can't learn it. So maybe that puts it on a different... The, right, but there's still just this one source of magic. That's what I keep coming back to. Like People like Julia, people like Penny, they still have to pull that from some source. It's only inherent if you're born with it, which seems to be only magical creatures. So if there is this little bit remaining somewhere, he could be doing it the same way Julia is. If not... There must be something different about him. And then there's that comment. So is he I, I need to creature? talk to Arjun because he's I have not gonna to tell know us. what's going <laughs> Of course he's not, but I have to know what's going on here. It would be like, hey, Arjun, welcome back. We miss you, man. Thank you. Are you a creature? <laughs> <laughs> While we're on questions about Penny, one of our clatchers, 
via Facebook wrote to us, Megan, and asked, why didn't pennies magically cause cancer end when magic ended? And that's a good question. And we had that question. We said, maybe he's not going to die now because magic's gone. So the magic that's causing him cancer is probably gone. Yeah, we actually asked him that in our interview. And I could tell it was wishful thinking by his response. He said he knew that's where a lot of people's train of thought was going, but there might be more to it than that, quote unquote. And again, is that because there's more to Penny or is that because of whatever he's been cursed with? And if that's the case, this is really devastating. It seems like nothing's going to be able to stop that. I said before, if I was him, I wouldn't be leaving the Netherlands, not even for an hour. The librarians certainly don't want him to. Katie begs him to go back when he sees her in the next scene. Yeah, so let's explain that. In the Netherlands, time stops. So I guess his deterioration stops as well? Or slows way down, pauses. It seems to get better when he goes back there. And when he goes to Earth, where time keeps progressing, so does his illness. So why do the librarians keep sending him out to pick up books? That's what I said. Why can't they just keep him there? It seems like he doesn't want to be kept there. He needs something to stay busy. And she has maybe reluctantly agreed to send him out for only an hour at a time because she deems... That won't do a lot of damage. I don't know. (laughs) But that brings up my next question. And I'm sorry I don't know his name. The guy, and we normally know names, but I don't think we were ever given this one. The guy that Penny was taking the book back from? Yeah, they didn't say. He had mentioned the library once Penny said he worked for the library. And he had broached the question, what is the library up to? There's something else going on there. Why are they still collecting? Now, it makes sense for workers such as him, if you want to call it that to want to stay focused on something, but the library isn't just doing it to keep people busy. The library as an order clearly wants to continue getting their books back because it's important. Why do they need them? Why is this such a severe infraction to return a book late? Even, but even further, I still think, and I think I broached this last season, that the library isn't a good place and there's something else that Penny doesn't know about and no one knows about yet. You think they're up to no good. Yeah. And I had said that before. I really do. There's something, they're tricky. They trick you. They're very rigid in their rules. And who reads books anymore? No, but there's something about them that I really, I I, I just don't see them just being librarians. I agree. I don't think they're just librarians. I think there's more. I was wondering if they had nefarious motives last season but there's something about the librarian I don't know I'm kind of starting to feel like she maybe cares about Penny a little bit if or other... she cares about Penny dying because she needs him for something and that's why this whole he will be a librarian for his lifetime thing, <laughs> yeah you know? could be the there's a reason why she wanted intense. that contract because <laughs> he's a traveling magic creature I don't know. We know his powers are pretty strong normally. I was hoping we would get more about this, but how long is the library even going to exist is the next question. In the following scene, we have this opening shot of a world falling apart from space. Yeah, and doing our research, no one brought that up. I think people forgot because it was such a quick scene. You could have missed it if you were looking away. Is that Fillory? Is that the Netherlands? Is the Netherlands a separate planet to itself because then when they zoom in on the library it's crooked inside the Mm -hmm. the angle of the camera 
leading you to believe that the Netherlands is at least there, wherever there is. And this is a way more serious problem. The whole planet is crumbling and looks like it's almost being sucked away into something. Like a black hole or something, yeah, brought to pieces. How can they survive this? Well, if you look back to Ember and Umber, and when Umber was showing Q, the new world he was creating, that tiny world. The pocket world. Yeah, and then he was explaining that... Fillory is the same thing they created on their uh, together. It's like their play place, on a somewhat right? larger scale. Yeah, Umber's dead. Does that mean inevitably this world's going to die too? They're both dead, and oh, we, that's right. Yeah, we know they were intimately linked to the world itself, and so yeah, it could be Fillory that we're seeing, or that whole universe. But that's that even created. that's even more of a problem. How do you fix that? It's not just that the creators are gone. It's not just that magic is gone. It's physically falling apart. But we don't see any of those effects yet when we go to Fillory. So it made it feel very isolated right now to the Netherlands. But hopefully we'll get more about that soon. Let's go to Fillory, where in the royal court, Elliot and Margot try to rule as the fairies oversee with a menacing presence. Fen has apparently cracked up. She's cradling a bundled piece of wood like a baby and laughing to herself. That reminded us that Fen and Elliot's real baby is still being held in the fairy realm. Yeah. And if you recall, that wasn't the only thing that Fen had lost or had endured last season. I mean, I felt like it was a one, two, three punch to her. It was. But she wasn't showing any signs of really losing it. She was kind of holding it together and trying to be strong. Something has happened between then and now. Hope. Once you lose hope, you know, humans, she's not human, Philorian, but same concept. When all is lost, people say humans are an amazing creature in itself because we can hold on to hope and survive just off of hope. Yeah, well, she even had hope when Margot promised her yeah. she would find a way to bring the baby back. I don't know if it's just enough time has gone by and that's not that's happening. That's what I mean. She's lost the hope. Yeah. And lost herself. Really sad. And nobody even seems to be paying her any mind. I was going to say, Elliot doesn't seem to give a shit. Elliot. I mean, I know he's got some shit to think about, but... They didn't even mention her. But I think Margot does care. I think that's the majority reason why she's running all these crazy errands for the Fairy Queen, doing whatever she orders her to do, such as collect all of these Lumbricus Compestris, (laughs) the earthworms from around the castle. This apparently is just the next in a long line of chores she's been giving her. So that's another question we have for this season. What are the fairies' goal? There's a reason why she's collecting that, and what did she say, uh, butterflies with... Well, Margot names a lot of other things, but she prefaced that by saying, what's next? Yes. This or this? So I don't know if... So I wonder what they're trying to... That's really stuff she was getting for her, but yeah, maybe ingredients for some kind of spell something they're intending for the baby we had a theory from last season that they were going to raise this baby and then eliminate all other humans so that it was the last one left because it was required that you have a human to rule fillory but i kind of thought those ideas went out the window with the end of ember and umber that seemed like an arbitrary thing that ember told us that he decided it had to be humans because they were a plucky bunch and he wanted to see what humor that would add to the world. So I don't think that's 
built in, something they still need to follow with the end of all law, order, reason, and our humans not even having magic anymore, the fairies surely could just come in and do what they want, right? Why would they still need this long game of raising a human to rule? She seems to be having fun with this. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious. I don't have an answer, of course, right now. I do have to say I have a new respect for the way they designed the fairies. Last year, I had some qualms about it. And I think, one, because I was fighting with my inert nature to want fairies to always be good mm-hmm. because we grew up with fairies are the magical, good little creatures, you know. But also, so I wanted them to look more beautiful. But now that we're getting to know this main fairy, the fact that it's not pure white gowns that they're wearing and the way her face looks like it is a little evil it's very scary and there have been some stories throughout literature of darker scarier fairies it's an exciting prospect for me it wasn't that I wanted them to look more beautiful I just wanted them to look more fantastical I wanted more magic period did you want them to glow or or something glow a little bit um, no, it's just their outfits are kind of these plain white. Their makeup is this plain. There's just not a lot to them. They are intimidating for sure. But I had mentioned that we didn't even really get to see their realm. That one room, I think. Whenever they showed it last season, it was in an overlay of fillery, this right. time space thing. So I know they were limited with what they had to work with as far as budget and what we could see. The White Lady was an example of a creature that I thought was magnificently done, just stunning to look at. And of course, we get the Great Cock in this episode, which is also very beautiful. So I'm satisfied now, Yeah, but I'd like to see more. Yes, I agreed with you. But now that I'm getting to know them, I feel like that look really follows the way they are. They're kind of rugged, shitty beings you know so them looking a little rugged and shitty she seems to just enjoy torturing yeah. specifically Margot. I, I don't know why she's got so much beef for her but like you said i think part of this is just pleasure of messing with them and that on top of the powers she seemed to have all episode long made them very formidable and real quick maybe she has a problem with Margot because Margot was the one that tried to get the baby back of course. So that's why. Of course. But she almost doesn't even acknowledge Elliot, even though Elliot is high king. She looks to Elliot as nothing to worry about, I think. Yeah. I think she sees Marco as the true power ruling force, which is very interesting for what that says about their dynamic, especially in an episode where I think we see Elliot stepping up yet Persevere, again yeah. in a big way. Every time the story asks something of him, Elliot grows more in order to reach that goal, coming from somebody we discussed often in season one, couldn't get himself up and going for much other than a party. He was basically Break Bill's Bacchus. Yes, very true. He's come a long way. We're going to break from them for a minute to go to Break Bill's, where Irene McAllister visits Dean Fogg. She tells him the board of trustees is out of their minds because of the trouble they fell into when all their magic companies went belly up. The board thinks there must be a way to find magic somewhere, and Breakbill should be completely invested in looking for it. Even though Dean Fogg says they have searched everywhere to no avail, including Breakbill South, Irene says if they don't find something soon, the board will close down the school. Who is this board? What is their problem? Well, they're the rich and powerful who are losing the only way they became rich and powerful. Magic. They're panicked. 
But what do they think? They're hiding it somewhere? I don't do know. they think Breakbills doesn't want magic just as bad as everyone else? What is the threat going to do if there's no magic to be had? Absolutely. And looking further into it, let's speak about Dean Fogg. I feel bad for this man. I do too. <laughs> I have said many times before that I don't think this storyline does enough for us when it comes to Dean Fogg, which is so funny because it's very parallel with Harry Potter. And Dumbledore. I always said, why is Dumbledore always just like dealing with the school responsibilities? And he has Harry dealing with all the impossible missions. And then in the end, he comes and says, good job, Harry. But the the thing there was that Dumbledore seemed to have the power, the ability to change things. He was incredibly powerful. Dean Fogg is very open about his own limitations. He wants to help. There's nothing he can do more than anyone else, though... I kind of question if he does know where Mayakovsky is. Maybe. And is covering for him. I think that might be. why would he give him up to the board of trustees? Yeah, and that's why I bring it up. I think this new storyline with Dean Fogg is going to make him a more important through line throughout this season. But I believe, at least at this point, if I was Quentin, not that he has the knowledge that we do now, because he, Quentin doesn't know that the board told Dean Fogg this, the last person you want to know that Julia still has got some magic is Dean Fogg. Well, Quentin's already very worried about anyone else finding out about what Julia can do. He warns her about that later. You never know if the wrong people are going to find out. And I wondered if that was a little bit of foreshadowing to how this will intersect later on. The two of them are busy trying to find a way to talk to the old gods. Quentin wants to make a plea to them to bring back magic by soliciting a minor earth god for help to find them. As we said before, Julia doesn't think this is a good idea. And besides, they don't have magic, but Q thinks there must be another way to call a god. People used to do that many thousands of years ago. And so Josh turns up and says he thinks he can help. He takes them to a party thrown by a man who welcomes Josh the animal warmly, but won't let Quentin and Julia in because they're no fun. Josh always seems to show up at times like this with some clutch moves about how to help how does he just happen to know where Bacchus hangs out well because he was a partier and he was a cook Mm -hmm. he probably brought his food to parties like this often I think they made note of that when he showed up right his product or something along those lines so I think that's one of the things and also he seemed to be from season one when we got to meet him He's very open, very talkative. Right away, he was very warming to our crew. So I think he's like that in real life with everyone. I loved the Josh of the books and was very anxious for a long time in season one if we would ever see him. And then once they introduced him, he seemed to be playing a very minor role, which is different from book Josh. But I think hopefully we're going to start seeing a little bit more of him. And I really enjoy him. I like the actor who's playing him here too. Real quick, I want to rewind a little bit to before they got to the party when Quentin and Julia were discussing what to do next. We're seeing that Q is the one that's really trying to get magic back while Julia is very doubtful. And I'm, I'm thinking it's, she's regressing back to what we mentioned before, season one when she wasn't part of the Break Bill's crew and she just had, she was struggling and obsessed with magic now and she needed to get it. And the doubt that she had in her mind, the pain, I think she was... She's internally regressing a little bit. Well, she keeps saying that it's just a little, look at these silly little things. This isn't anything. So yeah, it's like she's insecure 
sure, I'm the only one that has magic, but what can I do with it? Blow smoke rings? How is that really going to help anyone? Or I think maybe, and they've given no indication of this in the TV show, but I know that if this was me and everyone else had lost their magical ability and I still had just a little bit of it. You felt guilty? Guilty, but also wondering, should I use it at all? What if it does run out? Is this Uh, all I have left? What if I need it eventually? I don't know. There'd be so many thoughts running through my head, you know? You keep thinking it's going to run out. I don't think it... Well, at this point... You never know. We don't know. I think why I keep going back to that, last season when we got that look at the Wellspring and Fillory that Martin Chatwin was controlling... There was a limited amount, and he had taken so much that Fillory was falling apart without it. It was powering the whole world. What happens when that wellspring is completely drained dry? And it kind of seems like they've shut it because they don't want that to happen. So again, where is this coming from? And it doesn't feel like an unlimited resource. And if this is Fillory that we see falling apart, is that it for magic forever? These are all really scary thoughts. And I don't think our magicians know one way or the other. Well, I'm back at the party. Quentin and Julia have to wait outside in the hallway stairs getting drunk. They decide their way in is to perform a stupid dance they made up when they were 12. I don't know why they think this is a good idea. Just when you get drunk. It's the only way you start. They remembered having fun then. It's awesome. I think think (laughs) they remembered having fun. He opens the door and lets them in. He says he could tell they were magicians from Quentin's hands and Julia's crazy level of drama. He also says he didn't know about humans losing their magic. Q tries to tell them the story. He admits he killed a minor god, which interests him for about a second until he realizes he doesn't know who Ember is, so it's fine. Which goes to show you that it's a lot more vast than just what we know, the world we know, Earth and Fillory. And that's why I don't think... Even if that world that's getting destroyed, Fillory or whatever it is, gets destroyed, that's not the end of magic forever because there's magic elsewhere. There's other gods that we don't know about. But it seems to be that's the only source of magic for our humans. And I wonder, is that because Ember and Umber intentionally pulled them into the mix? They thought it was interesting for humans to have this ability to come to Fillory. Was this just flying under the old gods' radar because they didn't care? And now that they know about it, they're putting their foot down? There's so much we don't know, and I was hoping Bacchus would tell us. But the more things go on, we realize he is not very helpful at all. All he cares about is having a good time. He tries to loosen up Q by feeding him drugs. And this leads us into a scene where they're all going through their personal demons. Quentin hallucinates seeing Alice. Julia sees Richard. And Josh talks about how he desperately misses magic. Before, he was gifted and belonged everywhere. Now, he doesn't know what anything is about anymore. He's so depressed that Julia decides to reveal not all hope is gone, which is when she shows him the little bit of magic she has. Which was fun for us, too. I'm such a child. I'm like, ooh, magic. (laughs) So excited magic's back in our life. Here's a thought I had, and, you know, this was just a passing thought while we were watching, but I think it's worth noting if you look at the Bible, we had vengeful gods, right? God flooded the earth. Especially like Old Testament, yeah. Yeah. So in this world, if you kind of put that storyline in, them being a little vengeful, turning off the pipes of magic or whatever you want to call it, could it be that the gods are just trying to remind the magicians how much they should appreciate magic, how much they should appreciate what the gods have given them? 
And maybe that's why there's still a little bit that key people can utilize still. And then it's up to the humans to earn it back, to find a way to get the magic back. And it'll mean that much more to them once they have it back. And it'll hopefully the old gods will be respected more or something like that. That's a good line of thinking. And I like the theory. The problem is from what we've learned about the gods, minor and major, throughout our storyline, we had kind of hoped, right along with the magicians, once they discovered this magical world of fillery, they would one day meet Ember and Umber, who would be benevolent beings there to guide them. Maybe they've bestowed magic on them for a greater purpose and they would have to discover that. We find out that is nothing close to the truth. Ember and Umber are playing with these humans, in a world they created just for fun. They do have many human-like qualities, and I could see them being vengeful or wanting to toy with our humans. I don't know if they'd want to teach them a lesson. Maybe some minor god gods would. But the way they describe the old gods, who are even greater than that, bigger, more important beings, is... They see humans as specks. They don't even take notice of them half the time. They don't care what's going on with them. They're like parasites, insects. I think it took something like killing a minor god to put this on their radar. And now that they've noticed, they just kind of sent in the cleanup crew. This is causing a problem. Go turn off magic there. It would be wonderful if they did have to go on a quest to learn this. But I don't think that's the kind of story that Lev Grossman was telling about his world. You might be right. He goes for the darker <laughs> approach. I am the god of hope. So I guess that's the seed that I'm planting in my head. Well, I think the hope we can maybe find for our characters is that they can discover a loophole without the old gods noticing. I think going to them is a horribly bad idea. What they want to do is stay under the radar. And they do kind of look for that loophole by the end of this scene. Bacchus is annoyed with Q for being a vibe killer. But Q persists. He says he needs to talk to his parents, the old gods. Bacchus thinks this is a bad idea, as the old gods are, quote, imperious and distant dickwads who he hasn't even talked to in a millennia. So they don't even care about their own children. Well, that coincides with a lot of Greek mythology. Absolutely. He also says if fixing magic is so important, who they should see is Prometheus, because he loved magicians. And this also goes back to the ancient Greek mythology, where Prometheus was one of the very few gods who wanted to help humans. He was the first one to suggest giving them fire so they could become more godlike. The other gods kind of said, why would you want to do such a stupid thing? We don't want them to become more like us. So he took it to them. He stole it and gave it to them in secret. And the gods were not happy. He was punished for all eternity, in fact. And this other guy at the party reminds Bacchus that Prometheus is dead. But he can vaguely remember a story Prometheus might have told him once. He told me this crazy story one time about how there's like, like a secret back door to magic. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, what? I, I don't remember the deeds, okay? My face was melting off. Secret back door to something. Mm -hmm. <gasps> Wait! Might have been a brothel. Shots! And of course, the show tries to throw us off the scent of how important that was because he immediately says something stupid after that, like, oh, 
he's just a drunken god. He doesn't really remember. But I think the secret back door is very key. Well, Bacchus says, or maybe that was to a brothel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's what I mean. So kind of brush it off. That's a big thing. And I think that's what shows you their real answer to getting there. And I wonder, is that the same thing that they're going to be questing for when Elliot gets this mission about the keys? Or is that a different backdoor? You got to believe it's all going to come together by the end of this episode. Next, we have a brief scene where Harriet thinks she's found a way to help Penny, a book. But she tells Katie, you need magic for it. She, too, thinks there's no way it's all gone. Someone must have seen this coming. I love Harriet. I loved her in season two. I think it's really because I love Marley Matlin. And I didn't realize it till lately. Okay, real quick story. Our Patreon members know this. I love to find an old show on Netflix that has many seasons that I can just, before I go to sleep for an hour or two at night, put on and just keep binging every Mm -hmm. night as like a comfort thing. So I finished Grey's Anatomy on there and now I'm doing West Wing. And Marley Matlin is on West Wing, and I love her in that as well. You were so excited to see her back here. I'm always screaming to Christina, oh, it's blah, 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 in this case, <laughs> Marley Matlin, oh my God. So I love the fact that she's back on screen, and we'll hopefully see more of her. Yeah, this was just a quick tease to remind us many of our characters are feeling the same way about finding a reservoir of magic. But more importantly, what is this book about? Yeah. Is this from the order? Is it something separate? How does she know about it? We always got the idea that Harriet had more knowledge than she was letting on. We were kind of worried at the end of last season what Katie was getting herself into, making a deal with her. Penny didn't seem to think it was a good idea for some reason. And I'm wondering, if you remember, Harriet said, I went through a lot to get it. Mm -hmm. So I wonder what she went through to get it as well. And if that's where the conflict comes into play, now that Penny is working for the Order. Oh, yeah. Oh, you think it's from the library? I, they're the ones that have all the really yeah. important books. Oh, boy. So that could get juicy. But we don't get any more of that. We go back to Whitespire, where Margot tries to delegate the Earthworm task to the castle guards. But the Queen is somehow on to her again. Don't tell me you sent someone out to do your work. <laughs> I'm a delegator. It's a leadership quality. You've clearly mastered it. I thought it was clear. They are to be plucked by female hands, and I desire those hands to be yours, but only if you wish to keep them. The way she spoke to Margot in this is very creepy. Yeah. Like I ordered you to do it. Female like, oh, hands. Yeah. Like, and again, there seems to be something about her as a woman, particularly that the queen is interested in. And I wonder if this female thing has anything to do with it. Was Elliot and Fenn's child a girl? I thought I remembered it being a girl. I hope we don't get yelled at. I don't remember. That could be a key thing, though, Mm -hmm. to what they're after. I mean, they do make specific mention later of the fact that this is a matriarchy. I can't remember if it's Tick or the Great Cock that says that's a bad idea. But first, the ambassador to the Talking Animals offers some cleverly worded advice to Elliot about their hostile occupying force. He tells him about a corridor built by the High Queen Jen Lee, the bookish, made of a rare stone from the Shivering Sea, which certain species are allergic to, including the fairies. Now, that must be something that's going to come in as more important later. (laughs) It's kind of just a blip on the radar here that they think they've found a place 
where they can talk without the fairies overseeing them, which of course doesn't work. Elliot and Margot retreat there to speak, lamenting that all the books on poison have disappeared from the royal library since the fairies arrived. Elliot decides to send Idri a message to see if Loria can help. But when they return, the queen again knows what they've talked about and warns that Loria was also purged of the books and instructed not to talk to them. So at this point, we don't know how she's doing it. They do zoom in on that charm she wears on her bracelet. And we've seen her play with the eye many times. Yeah, but I didn't, eye. I didn't put that together yet here, did you? No. So, you know, it was kind of a good idea, I guess, to solicit Loria, although Idri wasn't much help last season when they were in trouble either. I don't know that he would have come and tried to fight a war against the fairies, but they're pretty desperate. And this is a consistent thing. Elliot and Margot really working together, not going at each other at all, just stepping up to try to figure out what needs to be done to help Fillory. And Elliot discovers a plan. Very crafty. He brings Margot outside to speak to her in code so the fairy queen won't know what they're talking about. You watched Battlestar, right? Yeah, I love when they do terrorism allegory with mostly white people. Mm-hmm. You remember Grace Park in season one? Of course, best storyline. Why? Duh, because she was actually... You were Grace Park, okay? You were Grace Park, Margot. And we have ourselves a bit of a Gene Hackman in the conversation. I didn't see that yeah, one. Right. Um, someone is XOXO gossip girling our shit. Remember James Marsden in X-Men? Hmm? Your Marsden is XOXOing us, full on that great song by the police. That Farouche Balk in the crowd. Yeah, more Cersei Lannister. Hey. Glad I made you read those. Well, I read the wiki. What? Those books are like a million pages long. I have a life. Okay. Anyway, whatever your Marsden would XOXO, Cersei XOXOs. So we have to keep it very best episode of Buffy. <gasps> Musical? Other one. Okay. How do we Lizzie Borden the shit out of this thing? Because mm. I am about ready to go full 07 Britney. I think a great opportunity for the show creators to just dump a lot of pop culture references. I love this. This These are one of the many things that I love about this show. The pop culture references, the hip jokes, the... I don't know. It speaks to our age, for sure, because it's a lot of older pop culture stuff that we grew up with. And I mean, was it necessary? No, but I think they did it in a way that was fun. Yeah, this episode was filled with a lot of really fun jokes or fun banter like this that just made you laugh. One of the many pop culture in the code was Gossip Girl, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, don't go too fast, because first he does Star Trek, calling Margot Grace Park from season one, which means she's an unwitting sleeper agent. Then the fact that someone is hidden in plain sight spying on them, which is where they finally deduce she's watching them through Margot's eyeball. She's Cersei Lannister. This was perhaps the best one, and Elliot admits he read Wiki because the books are like a million pages <laughs> long. That reminded me of you. Yep. And how do they Lizzie Borden her, i.e. kill her? Finally, Harry Potter would know what to do even without a wand, and their Harry, Quentin, would consult the Fillory in further books. And of course, I had to throw in a little Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was funny. I love how they find a way to have fun even when everything's going to shit. 
Elliot thinks he has an idea. He goes to speak to Tick to tell him when the magic died, the fairies pounced, and his plan is to capture the white lady so they can wish the fairies away. That's a good idea, but while he's hunting the white lady, he comes across another magical creature, the great cock of the Darkling Woods. Another funny. They can never miss out on an opportunity for a cock joke. Oh, their interactions were incredible. At one point he says, I've seen some peacocks, but you are by far the most magnificent. And he says, I'm diligent about hydration. I don't know why that was so funny. It's just because it's this beautiful character. You, in a movie, you wouldn't see a character like that speak that way. It's great. They seem to be almost kindred spirits. The great cock takes an immediate liking to him. And here's his petition out, but he advises they have a problem greater than the fairies. He will send Elliot on an epic quest to bring back magic. This was the most critical part of the whole episode. He says, You are a good king, but it is time to become a great one. In order to do that, you must travel to a land where you're no king, no magician, just a vulnerable man. Honestly, that sounds like something I might really fuck up. Yes, or it wouldn't be a quest. You have friends, don't you? I used to. The one-eyed conqueror, the traveler, the warrior, the fool, the god-touched, the lover of tomatoes, and the torture artist. Wait, which one is that you lost me there? Never mind. You have a brother of the heart with uh, floppy hair. That would be Quentin. Your parts are one whole. No one can do this alone. Okay. FYI, I can't contact them or reach them in any way. You must find the book with no author. A tale for children, but they're hardly that. There is the key or the keys. In a place called Public Library in the Shire of Chester, the land of New Jersey. Again, that sure sounds like Earth. Elliot, the quest I bestow on you is the task you were born for. Claim it. And I love this because it's a callback to the titles of Lev Grossman's three books, which were called The Magicians, The Magician's King, and The Magician's Land. He then says, take your friends. And we get all new labels for our characters. If you remember last season, Ember went through the labels he had put on to each of them. The bitch, the scowl. <laughs> now we have the one-eyed conqueror, which is Margot, The traveler, Penny. The warrior, Katie. The fool, Quentin. And poor Quentin always gets the same kind of labels. Uh, the god-touched, Julia. The lover of tomatoes, Josh, if you were paying attention. And the torture artist, which by process of elimination must be Alice. Oh boy. Man. What does that mean? So the warrior to you is Katie, not Alice? No, because we've kind of seen that the person who steps up to fight consistently is Katie. True. Oh yeah, the punching. Yeah. <laughs> she does all Penny's dirty work. Sorry, Arjun. He also says you are parts among a whole. No one can do this alone. Find the book with no author. There's the key for the keys in a place called Public Library in the Shire of Chester, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. This quest is the task you are born for. Claim it. What I love about this, consistently Quentin has thought 
he's supposed to be the hero of this story. But the story seems to tell us otherwise time and time again. And very often, the one who seems to fit that bill is actually Elliot. He's named High King of Fillory. He's given this epic quest to look for the seven keys. He's told he was born for this. And it seems virtually impossible. They can't even overcome the difficulties they're having right now. How do they travel to this land that's incredibly dangerous, go on a quest that's going to take a season, which was very cute, I guess all of season three, and bring back magic without having any magic of their own? How are they going to do this? A very nice looking ship. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that. Don't you worry. It's called the Muntjac. Ooh. Before we move on from this, I really loved this whole scene. One, the new character, the great cock. Amazing. Beautifully done. I mean, the imagination brought to life on screen was perfect. Like all the other magical creatures, slightly scary Mm -hmm. and intimidating. His face. I felt the same way about the white lady, but beautiful. Yeah. And also funny as hell and has a great personality. I would want to hang out with him. I hope this isn't the end of him. I have a feeling it's a one-off, but so perfect. And it also brings a lot of excitement to me because all last season I kept saying, why do they keep splitting up our crew? I love it when they're together, the banter they have off each other. They're stronger when they're together. I feel like this quest, even if it's for a little while, is going to bring them all together. He says they need all of them and it'll take all season. I don't know if Alice will be there, though. That's the big question mark. She seems to be put on the outskirts of this episode, the crew. She's listed if we see her as the torture artist. So uh, she'll have to come at least for some period of time. Elliot also learns that the bunnies have messenger abilities because they can move easily between worlds. So he sends Q1, who says, need help, love Elliot. And the way he says it was so funny. The voice was perfect. Cute little bunny with uh, this scraggly voice. I was laughing my ass off. I wasn't much for the pregnant bunnies last season, but this, this time I loved it. Oh, they really made the bunnies worth it. Arjun wrote on Twitter, Everyone meet at Go For Mike, one of our writers, extraordinaire, and bunny voice. Awesome. You would think, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, that you can't top the funny bunny. But then how do you top it? A bunch of bunnies all talking at once. And now I was gone at this you were point. I was your crying. Ass off. I couldn't hear what was going on. I had to listen to it again. Elliot's message leads Quentin to the library where Julia finds the book, The Tale of the Seven Keys, but it's still half blank. What I thought was interesting was she pulls out a fold that's a couple of pages long. It looks like where a map would be on the inside yeah. of the book. So I have a feeling that's going to be the map that leads them to the keys they're searching for sequentially. It kind of reveals itself as we go along. Yeah, and when they say, this is it, this is part of the quest, we're in it already. I got tingles because that's like every fantasy movie or show that we love. We're in the quest right now. Also, didn't it make you think of when they were looking at the books in the library that were only half filled in because they were still telling their stories? Right. So it all kind of comes back to the order and the library with all of these important things, too. I'm very eager to see where that leads. And meanwhile, Elliot starts receiving the messages back from the bunnies and confirms the quest is on. The keys will unlock and help restore magic, and the first one is in Fillory on the After Island, which lies beyond their border, but the area is very dangerous for them. The Outer Sea itself wishes ill upon their king, All of those who have sailed before have drowned. 
Oh, Elliot. <laughs> Looks real bad, but Fen suddenly and very rationally says she knows exactly the boat Elliot needs. And again, we'll come back to that in a second. We have one final scene where Alice allows a vampire to suck her blood in exchange for information about the lamprey. She has no magic, so he says she needs an early warning device that will give her time to run. So remind me, what's the deal with the lamprey? Alice killed this lamprey's family while she was a Niffin. We don't know why or exactly the details about it, but we found out at the end of the last season that it was after her because of this. So I don't know if she had magic, if she would just wind up killing it. It sounds like a very formidable monster. And I think when we finally meet it, it's going to give us information about some bad things potentially that she did while she was a Niffin. This is coming back to bite her. And you do see that human side of her again and the missing, the crew, or at least Quentin. She goes into the diner and ends it by eating some bacon. Yes, and it's not just bacon. Bacon has a deeper storyline. Yeah, that's what I mean. It was heartwarming because this is what Q did to try to remind her of her humanity and bring her back, which eventually they were able to do. But he was telling her about all of the great things that there are to being human. It's not all pure suck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They slept together and he later made her bacon, fed her bacon. Very sad, though. I mean, she looked so alone, so lost in the way they shot that scene with the lighting and all that. One of our clatchers on Twitter, at ScottCraig988, wrote, Why the silverware? It's bacon. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one. Yeah, it makes you wonder. Alice is kind of back a little bit to her old self, but she seems forever changed. So much has happened to her. What kind of life is she going to be able to leave? What's going to happen if they do get magic back and it returns to her? Where does she fit into all of this, you know? And it always feels like when they're together, it's either Quentin and Alice or Quentin and Julia. So I can't help but thinking as they're going on this quest and Quentin and Julia are reforming that relationship, what's going to happen when it's three of them again, you know? Yeah. Well, this episode leaves us with a lot of questions We talked about the obvious, how are people still using their magic? How can Penny still travel? How can Julia still do this? Where is Mayakovsky? Did he trigger all of this? What's going to happen with the board? What is Harriet's book and how will it potentially help Penny? Will they speak to Prometheus after all? They kind of left that hanging out there as a possibility. Well, he's dead. Yeah, but they went to the underworld last season to bring people back. No, I think the important part of that whole conversation wasn't Prometheus or meeting an old god that might be now something unattainable. I think it's more about finding that back door. It definitely is, and they have their mission. But these old gods, even the minor gods, kind of jump in and out of our story. I think there will be more of them. So again, will we see Persephone again? I have to believe so. And finally, like we just said, what's going to happen with this lamprey? I wonder how they're going to make the lamprey look. I bet it's going to look awesome. scary. (laughs) I love this show. We've had dragons. We've had magic. We've had everything. It's been a great opening into season three. So with that, let's go right to our rating. Jason, on a scale of one to ten keys, what do you give episode one? 9.8 keys. I loved this episode. One, it had the excitement because it's the start of a new season. You know, I tend to get overly excited. But two... 
I need some magic. Uh, the last couple of shows we've been reviewing are very intense, very deep, a lot of psychological things going on. And this is more fun, and I'm excited to have some fun, and, and I need some magic in my life right now. Magically fix the website, please. But <laughs> everything they do, the world they carve out from Fillory, we know the set because we've seen behind the scenes. Very well done. They, they get into details in the backgrounds that you don't even see on screen, but they go for it. Even into the way they made the windows, the texture on the windows, the way the light shines through on the floor and the walls, it makes Fillory look even more magical even though it's just light through a window, oh, just the yeah. shapes and the, the texture the, it creates, it's very beautiful. The visuals, anytime they're in Fillory, are particularly amazing. And I, I think we're going to get some more of that soon. I'm trying so hard not to get into our spoilers. I'm not going as high as you, but I did love this episode. I'm going to give it a 9.3 keys. It's a solid opening. I have a feeling it's going to get better. So I want to leave some room to keep moving up as we go along. Whoa. I was just thinking about back door, and then you just said keys. They're going to need a key into that back door. Of course they are, but there's seven keys, yeah, supposedly. So I have no idea what these keys are about, but that just made me think door key. Yeah, is each one going to be a different mission? Or a different back door? There's a lot of doors. Maybe. <laughs> they got to find the right door. Door number one. Door number two. Or we see that everyone has kind of their own quest. Maybe each quest is to either get the key or they need a key for each quest. I try not to do this season... Uh, I try not to do this episode one of every or show because... to different <laughs> worlds? We saw in the Netherlands when they go into the fountains. Each oh, one right. takes them to a different world. I don't think they'd do that again. It's going to be fun. I'm very excited. I can't wait. I wish it was on Netflix right away so we can just binge it. Let's move on to Most Valuable Magician. So every week it's going to be hard for me not to use Penny. But I think this one I was able to steer away from him. Yeah, you got to save it. He looked amazing in that suit. <laughs> he had some great magic. I love when he uh, travels. Also, you remember? did you see the way he looked when he grabbed the book? He like posed with it before it disappeared. <laughs> That's so cool. But I'm going to go this week for my most valuable magician, Elliot. Because he really got the main quest going. And he's the one, you know, Margot, which is surprising for me to say, right now seems to be lost, overwhelmed by the fairies. And it's Elliot who is stepping up, finding a way to speak to Margot in pop culture language. Pop culture-ese. Yeah. <laughs> pop culture Latin, instead of pig Latin, uh, to start conversing with her and find out about the bunnies and get the team back together. So it, it's definitely Elliot this episode. I really wanted to go Elliot, but I had a feeling you would. So I'm giving it to a... Slightly less obvious character. I'm going to go with Josh. He's the one that got them to Bacchus. Bacchus. To start forming this plan. But really, what I thought was great about him is he seemed so pure in his love for magic. Always, but especially this episode when he was talking about what he wants it for, how he would utilize it, how sad he is without it. He just seems to personify the best a magician could be when they're using their magic for good. And how happy and hopeful he is when Julia gives him just this little glimpse of these smoke rings she can do. It's like a kid on Christmas watching them. That, to me, completely justified Julia's explanation was right on point when she told Q, 
I had to do this for him. If I can't look at a man like this, so lost and hopeless without it, and bring just a little bit of light back into his life with the small amount of magic I have left, why do I have this? And again, I wondered if that's a foreshadow for later on, the reason she'll have to use magic, maybe not for its huge practical powers, but to inspire hope in a way like this. So I hope Josh continues to bring that into our season along with his bits of humor that are always on point. So as we stated earlier, unfortunately, we weren't able to run our MVM poll this time, but hopefully we will have that up again soon. Keep a lookout for it. Our next segment would normally be Clatcher's comments. We did speak about a few of our Clatcher's comments, but mainly most of our comments come from our email, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. If you did email us, again, the server is down, so we were unable to receive your emails. We apologize for that. But we should be up and running, so keep those coming. Contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. And the last segment of the episode, as always, is stuff that has spoilers. So if you're afraid of that, we will see you next time. For everyone else that's still here, I'm about to go 07 Britney on you. This is your official spoiler warning if you don't want to hear it. First, we saw that next episode, Heroes and Morons. Elliot will travel to a faraway place in search of a special object. Alice runs from a monster. Quentin, Katie, and Josh continue the search for magic, and Penny's condition worsens. Oh, no. No. <laughs> Not already in episode <laughs> two. We're also going to get our first look at the Muntjack. And if you've read the books, you will know this is a Florian sea vessel, a living ship, in fact that's going to become a major set piece for season two. The actors say it is a small space they were working with, and that's going to be interesting, the set of the actual boat, what kinds of plot line that will lead into. And the things about the ship itself will remain true to Book Munt Jack, but the adventure itself is going to be told in a very different way. And we saw this behind-the-scenes look at the ship. Just like the way they did Fillory, the creators, when they build these sets, they spare no expense. Details upon details upon details. I wish I could walk around in those stages. We also know a little bit more about the quest itself that they're going to go on, this tale of the seven keys. And this is based upon book knowledge where they talk about the fable of the seven golden keys. So I'm going to read a little bit about that fable. If you don't want to hear that and what could potentially tell us something about where we go this season, then definitely now is a good time to... uh, Click subscribe on our podcast and stop listening to this particular episode. (laughs) It's only going to be a little bit longer. If you're interested, though, I'm taking out the end piece that I think might give away too much. I'll just tell you the beginning. This fable is a children's story in Fillory. It's given to Quentin on the Outer Island. They think it's going to be at the Outer Island. It winds up being After Island. Sounds like we're going to After Island here. And the story tells about a witch, a man, and his daughter. The witch wanted the man's undevoted attention, but as he couldn't give it to her, she kidnapped his daughter and trapped her in a hovering castle and told him he had to find six golden keys to unlock the castle's door if he wanted to see his daughter again. The man spent years looking for them, but could only find them by accident, and with each key he found it opened another door, each room being bigger than the last. When he found the sixth and final key, he went to the castle and unlocked the final door, only to find his daughter was all grown up. The girl didn't recognize him, but thanked him and gave him a seventh key, which he never used. 
Supposedly, the last key had unknown magical powers, and many believed it was in the Outer Island, which later turned out to be correct, as it was, in fact, in After Island. So there's a little more. I won't give you that, but this is the fable. We got a lot of that last season where we heard about the books within our book universe, the Fillory and Further series. That's coming into play here with this fable that's inside of it. And they always seem to be kind of instructive for our characters. But as we see Quentin trying to figure that out along the way, it never quite leads him in the right direction or winds up the way he thinks it will. And yet, Elliot is willing to trust in that. We know that's what he turns to in the end here when he says, what would our Harry do or our Hmm. Quentin? He would turn to Fillory and further. And uh, that's how they came up with this idea. So we'll see how close they keep to it or what that's going to mean for our plot line moving forward. That's all we have this time. So we'll see you next week when we review episode two, Heroes and Morons. I can't wait. Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Please hang up and try again.